0: Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of Writing Perspectives, a podcast about writing and writers. My name's Steve Borley and I'm a writer. If you listened to episode five, you'll have heard Andrew Oakey talk about his experience of writing his first novel, The Alternative. Well, I'm delighted to say Andrew's joined us again and he's going to read us an extract from that novel, The Alternative. So just to set the scene, it's spring 1953. Christoph Amsel has just spent his first ever night with his new girlfriend Anna at Helena's cottage on a collective farm outside East
1: Berlin. Helena allowed us to sleep in until nearly noon. We would wake, each in our turn, or sometimes together, feel the sharp air at the edge of the quilt, and roll back into the musky warmth we had created between us. Downstairs, the radio was on, Misha's people speaking to Berlin. Each time I woke, I'd listen out to the announcer's calling the hours, reading the news. But there was none of that. There was just gloomy, pompous music, on and on without interruption. Something was wrong. I stumbled downstairs. Helena was there, drinking coffee. I've been outside, and there's no one working in the fields. She said this as as though it were an explanation, rather than just another question. Have they said anything on the radio, I asked. I had this terrible flash of fear, fear that the fighting in Korea had escalated into something broader, that even now they were loading up the bombers and the warheads and were about to kill us all. No, she said. There's no talking at all. Just all this miserable music. I took coffee up to Anna, shook her gently awake. I think we have to go back to Berlin, my love. And then I stopped short, because that was the first time I'd called her that. Anna shifted and stretched under the bedclothes. Why, Christy? I want to stay here. It's nice here. Come back to bed with me. Something's wrong, I said, but I don't know what, and the radio won't say. In which case, Christy, why would we go anywhere? If it's all so awful out there... We're better to be than here, together. She was right, of course. If the world was ending, then we might as well be comfortable in the meantime. Helena switched off the radio. She scoured the pantry for whatever was best, all the little luxuries that she had hoarded, and together we cooked up the absurd extravagance of a three-course meal. That was such a happy day, not knowing what was happening in the wider world, putting it out of our minds as best we could, never seeing another soul all day. And when evening came on, and the light started to thicken in the tiny parlour, we lit a fire and played cards. That was such a happy day. The next morning, the world of work unchanged. changed. Here and there were little signs of life. A tractor revving in the fields, and milk pails clanking like church bells heard distantly. We got the train back to Berlin. The carriages filled up as we got nearer to town, but there was none of the usual morning chatter. Everybody sat in silence. All around us, the people seemed too numb to communicate. I fought the urge to ask others what was going on. If things were that bad, that serious, then I feared seeming uncaring in my ignorance, uncaring to the point of suspicion. Ultimately, though, I didn't need to ask anyone anything, for that morning we found Berlin dressed like a Greek widow. Black banners hung from public buildings, black streamers festooned the sides of trams. Men and women went about silently, The women wearing buttonholes dyed black, the men wearing black ties. I escorted Anna to the school where she was training. At the gates was the answer to all our questions. There hung Stalin's portrait, double life-size, shrouded in black crepe. To each side, schoolchildren, two boys, two girls, stood to attention, guarding the holy relic. Laid beneath it were bunches of spring flowers, piled upon one another, and a small table. On this lay a child's jotter and in the book, people had written messages of condolence. Perhaps we should write something, whispered Anna. We glanced around, but it didn't seem that anyone was looking at us. If we were to make that ridiculous gesture, I thought, we might as well be observed doing so, and get some benefit from the act. I read through some of what was written there. Desperate, miserable, hand-wringing stuff. Who are these messages for, I wondered. Who could they be addressed to? Really, though... I understood the answer to this. You see, we had all been taught that if we thought, or felt, or saw like true socialists, then we thought and felt and saw like Comrade Starling. Each of us had taken to our hearts our own personal Stalin. He was our greatest treasure, the source of our virtue. We made ourselves in his image, even as we remade him in ours. So these messages were messages of faith, and they were messages of loss and they were addressed to ourselves.